message in the miracle. I just want to start by a little aside, really, and that is that when earlier in the year we were up on uh, the island of Mull for a holiday, and on the Sunday morning we decided we'd go to this little church. It's a little country church nestled in the woods, and uh, we thought that looked rather nice, and it said uh, Church of St. Columbo. I had no idea who St. Columbo was, but I have now. And so we went in, and, and uh, we wondered what we'd got into, actually, because um, there was no sign of anybody to preach. There was no sign of anybody up the front at all. Everybody was sitting there. And then suddenly in came the, the dean of somewhere. I can't remember what he was. And he had, well, I'd never seen robes like it. He had robes right down to his feet, and there was gold, and there was glitter, and everything else you can think of. And, and I thought, oh, gosh, what are we in for here? And... Uh, and then his sidekick came in, and, and he's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what do they call a sidekick in the Anglican Church? Assistant Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I'm, not, I'm not mocking it at all, because I, as you'll hear as I go on. Because, but that just slipped out, the sidekick. Don't worry, it's not being recorded. It's not. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we thought, oh, what are we going to get here? Actually, when he got up to Spoke, he was very, very good, this dean. And he spoke about the name of God and the nature of God uh, in, in a beautiful way and surprised us completely because we were really blessed by it. And um, at the end of, the, at the end of his, his preach, he said he put out a challenge. Now, I don't know whether they challenge people in the Anglican very often, but he put out a challenge. He says, what is God? Who is God to you? Who is God to you? I thought to myself, actually, that's a question that we in this congregation can actually ask ourselves. Who is God to you? You might, I might, you might come up with all sorts of different answers, but actually, who is God to each one of us is incredibly important. The bigger your view of God, the more that view of him will affect your life, the way you walk, the way you live, the way you... Where you um, uh, just live your life generally. Your view of God will actually affect everything about your life. <clears throat> How big is our God? It'll affect whether we live in peace or fear. Earlier, Lois was praying about the, the, you know, the situation, the world situation, the un unstable sort of situation that we face at the moment. And it will how we view God will either cause us to live in fear or it will cause us to live in peace. It will either cause anxiety in our lives or calm. And God has called us to peace. God has called us to calm. I just came across these words while well, somebody passed them on to me from Spurgeon. I tried to print it out, but I'm, it was a text, and I'm not sure how you print a text out, so I've got it to read. This is Spurgeon. He, for those of you who don't know, Spurgeon, of course, was a, um, a very famous preacher back long before my time uh, in London. And he wrote these words. God has a strong reserve with which to discharge this engagement, for he is able to do all things. Believer, till you can drain dry the ocean of omnipotence, Till you can break into pieces the towering mountains of almighty strength, you never need to fear. Think not that the strength of man shall ever be able to overcome the power of God. While the earth's huge pillars stand, you can have enough reason to abide 
firm in your faith. The same God who directs the earth in its orbit, who has promised to supply you with daily strength. While he is able to uphold the universe, dream not that he will prove unable to fulfill his own promises. Remember what he did in the days of old in the former generations. Remember how he spoke and it was done, how he commanded and it stood fast. Shall he that created the world grow weary? He hangs the world upon nothing. Shall he who does this be unable to support his children? Shall he be unfaithful to his word for want of power? Who is it that restrains the tempest? Does he not ride upon the wings of the wind and make the clouds his chariots and hold the oceans in the hollow of his hand? How can he fail you? When he has put such a faithful promise as this on record, will you for a moment indulge the thought that he has outpromised himself and gone beyond his power to fulfill? Ah, no. You can doubt no longer. O oh, you who are my God and my strength, I can believe that this promise shall be fulfilled for the boundless reserve reservoir of your grace can never be exhausted and the overflowing storehouses of your strength can never be emptied by your friends or rifled by your enemies. Now let the feeble all be strong and make Jehovah's arm their song. I thought that was just beautiful. It was actually sent to my cousin who's, who suffers a debilitating illness and his sister sent that to him. But when you think of who God is, then it affects the way you live. It affects the way we live. We have an all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God. He is a supernatural. He's not limited to operating within the laws of nature because he actually invented, he actually created those very laws. <clears throat> and his power is not limited in any way. He's sovereign. He can act in any way he chooses. He is answerable to no one. Mankind struggles with this thought, doesn't he? Well, is God fair? Is what God's doing just? God is answerable to no one because he is utterly sovereign. And yet, he always acts with justice and always acts with righteousness. <clears throat> He has a purpose behind all he does and nothing will thwart that purpose. We sometimes sing, don't we? Everything you've done is just and true. Holy, holy God are you. God is indeed holy, just and righteous. Tozer likened the sovereignty of God to a cruise liner. This is, this is, I find this really interesting and that's why I remember it so easily. But he said it's like a cruise liner that set out from New York and it's traveling to Liverpool. And on the deck, he says, are hundreds of people and they are free to do exactly what they want on the deck of that cruise liner. But the destination of that cruise liner is fixed and it will keep going until it arrives in Liverpool. God's purpose, he says, is fixed. God has a plan, a purpose that nothing will thwart and mankind is free to do what he wants on that thing. God has given man a free will. He's given him free choice. And he's free to do whatever he wants within that liner. But the destiny of that liner is fixed and God's purpose, his sovereign purpose, will come to fruition, whatever man may do. So when things look out of control in human terms, they are never out of control 
as far as God is concerned. That is so good to know. Because basically, you know, as we look around, we see things happening, and I won't enumerate them. You know what's going on at the moment, the uncertainty in the world. But I rest in the assurance that nothing is outside of God's ultimate purpose, his ultimate sovereign will, which he will bring to pass. So that's a bit of an aside, really, because I wanted to set the stage. It's like one of those, I think I remember speaking before, and, and speaking about watercolor paintings, and you put the wash coat on first, and then you put the details on top of that when the wash coat has dried and become permanent. And it's the sovereignty, the power, the greatness of God is one of those wash coats, as it were, that actually is on the painting. The details are added afterwards, but that never changes. That wash coat is there for all time. And God's attributes, every one of them, are part of that wash coat, that background of life. So the miracle I want to look at is the miracle of the Passover, the first Passover when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. At that time, God performed miracle after miracle, beginning with the burning bush, of course. That's when he called Moses, didn't he, to do his, his will in terms of bringing the Israelites out. And I was just thinking about that this morning, you know, the burning bush, it wasn't being consumed, was it? And yet it was flaming all over. And God, Moses, it says, Moses drew near to, to see the burning bush. And then God spoke from within the bush. And he said, the first thing he said is, take off your shoes, because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. It's almost like he set that precedent, that that present of everything else, that actually God's holiness is paramount in that situation. And we come, I, I'm very conscious sometimes that whatever we do, whatever our lives involve, the holiness of God must be a governing factor in all we do, in all our lives, in our behavior, in everything, the holiness of God. Because God never changes. God's purpose never changes. He is as holy now as he was when he appeared to Moses in that bush. <clears throat> then they followed the plagues, didn't they? The plague after plague, miraculous acts of God by which to show his power to Pharaoh in order that the Israelites might be released. And so then we come to the last. Now, I must apologize at this point because I had a list of scriptures um, which I totally forgot to send to the data projector and um, so I've been told that you won't get the scriptures, but that's not true, because there they are. <laughs> I thought to myself they'd have time to sort it out. <laughs> uh, so, Exodus 11, verse 1. I could read it off there, couldn't I? Now the Lord said, said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from there, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. In verse 4, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt, every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. Now you might sit there thinking, how could a loving God do something like that? And an unbelieving person would most definitely pose that question, regardless of the fact that apparently in 2020, 210,000 babies were killed by abortion. And yet man, 
when he has an opportunity, he will point the finger at God and say, how could you do that? <clears throat> but I rest in the knowledge and the comfort that every one of those firstborn of Egypt and every one of those babies that has been aborted is now in the presence of God in heaven. And that's a tremendous thought because God is no man's debtor, the scripture says. And he will never allow a life to be lost eternally that is in that innocent state of baby, babyhood. I also rest on the knowledge that the scripture says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts. God says, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So there's an old hymn that goes, I'm not skilled to understand what God has planned, what God has willed, what God has planned. And we have come to a point where we say, God, I don't understand everything that goes on, but I know that justice and righteousness surrounds your throne. It's the foundation of your throne. So if you know though I don't understand, I will not question your justice. I will not question your righteousness because ultimately God is just and everything he does is just and true. <clears throat> so the first plague, God brought the first plague of nine plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and his people in order that the Israelites might be released from captivity in Egypt. That captivity itself being a picture of the bondage of sin and, and the bondage of the world and the bondage of everything that is anti-God and anti-Christ. That captivity, that bondage that held them is a picture of the spiritual darkness. Egypt itself being a, prior, a picture of what the scripture refers to as the dominion of darkness. So those first nine plagues came, across, came upon the people of Egypt, but the last plague was different, and it had a whole different purpose to it. <clears throat> this is a picture of God dealing with, what, with the matter of sin itself. It's a picture of what was to come, the reality of which is fulfilled, of course, in Jesus. And we shall see how that, this plague, unlike the previous plagues, which largely only came upon the Egyptians. This plague would have come upon the whole of Egypt, including the children of Israel. You might think, well, why was that? Because children of Israel were a rebellious people. Let me just read to you. Have we got that scripture in Ezekiel, Claire? Uh, Save me spending time looking at it, finding it. This is what Ezekiel says in 20. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey and most beautiful of all lands. This is God speaking through Ezekiel, of course. And I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. This plague was going to affect the Israelites just as much as it affected, affected the Egyptians because they were a rebellious people against God. But God in his mercy never brings judgment, does he, without bringing a way of salvation. God is going to bring judgment on the world. There's no question about that. But he always provides a way of salvation first. And the first Passover is a wonderful picture of that salvation. The Egyptians and the Israelites were as guilty as each other when it came to rebellion against God. 
And I know in my own heart before I became a Christian, there was rebellion in my heart against God. I didn't want him ruling my life. I didn't want him being involved in my life. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it, and without any relationship or relation to God himself. Romans 3.23, Paul says, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You may have a different opinion, maybe, of your own life. Maybe you think it's not that bad. That's your verdict on your own life. You've done your best and all the rest of it. But God's verdict is what actually counts. And God says, you're a sinner and you've fallen short of his glory and his standard. <clears throat> Exodus 12, verses 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. <clears throat> this is God's answer. The salvation of each household was to rest upon this lamb. What a beautiful picture. <clears throat> Throughout the Old Testament, atonement for sin involved several different breeds of animal. There was bulls and goats and other things, but this was to be a lamb because this was a picture of the lamb of God. <clears throat> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John, John the Baptist could say when he saw Jesus coming. And this was a forerunner. This, the fulfillment was found in what happened in Jesus. But here was a forerunning picture of that beautiful outcome. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were just to be, there was just to be just enough for each household. And if the if household was a small one, they were to share it with their neighbors. Why was that? Because this was something so precious. This lamb was something so precious that it wasn't just something that if there was some left over there, you could just chuck it in the bin if they had bins in those days, or just chuck it away. It had to be destroyed. It had to be burnt because this something was something so precious in the sight of God and in the sight of the people. Verse 5 says, it was to be, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. The year-old male without defect. A year-old lamb is, is a full-grown lamb, actually, virtually full-grown, and it is a beautiful animal. You know, you see sheep in the field, and they've got shaggy old coats, and, but if you see a year-old lamb, it is a beautiful animal. It's got a dense, smooth fleece on it, and it's, this was to have no defects at all, a wonderful picture of the purity, the holiness, the sinlessness of Jesus. This wasn't just a little frolicking lamb that you see in the fields. This was at 33 years old. Jesus himself was in the prime of his life. I was going to say, are there any 33-year-olds here? But I don't know whether there are. But if there are, then this is the sort of person we're talking about. Somebody in their prime, somebody in their physical prime, somebody hopefully without any spots or anything like that because... This had to, animal had to be something without any defect, whatever. 
Verse 5, yes, it was to be without defect, another picture of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was, when he walked on earth, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. I love that song we sing. We don't sing it very often. We used to sing it more. Be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. Come bow before him now with reverence and fear. In him no sin is found. We stand on holy ground. Be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. He was tempted in all things and yet without sin. Then in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. <clears throat> they were to take this care of this lamb. They had it for four days in the household. And I guess every day they would look on that lamb and think, God's judgment is coming. But this lamb is our salvation. This is what God has provided for us to, so that we don't come under and fall under his judgment. You can imagine how precious that lamb came and they were to take care of it, they were to feed it, they were to to nurture that lamb until the twilight of the 14th day when they were to slaughter them all together. Verse 6 and 7. Take care of them until the 14th day. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Is is verse 12 there somehow, or shall I look it up? Oh, there it is, yeah. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I wonder why he just added that little bit, I am the Lord. In other words, he, he was really stating his ultimate sovereign authority to carry out this judgment. <clears throat> so they put but to put the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames, almost as though there was protection from all sides, all sides. <clears throat> How beautifully that reminds us of Jesus. John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Whoever comes in by me, he will be saved. The picture of the idea of a whole door is, a, is an entrance, isn't it? Entrance into salvation, entrance into hope and peace that we find in Jesus, and Jesus said, I am the door. That's no coincidence, is it, that the blood was placed upon the door frames and over the lintel. And here, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Anyone. You know, that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That anyone can enter through that door. Anyone. Those are the words of Jesus, not just mine. Jesus says, if anyone enters in, he can be saved. It's beautiful, it's so assuring that anyone, everyone here can actually know that peace and that salvation by entering in through the door. Have you entered that door? There's no protection for you or me from God's judgment outside of Christ, but there is total protection in him.
and through him. Martin Luther had a dream once. You may have heard it before, but he had this dream and the devil came before him and he, and he had this big blackboard or whiteboard, blackboard I guess in those days, and he wrote out every sin that Martin Luther had committed and write down, filled the board with all these sins and Martin Luther said, is that all? And he said, no, not, not all. And he got another, he went, another board, another board, another board. And uh, eventually Martin Luther said, is that all? And he said, yeah, that's all. And he just, Martin Luther took a pen and wrote across it, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And that's the truth. That is the truth. If you question the gospel, if you question what Jesus has done, you're questioning the, the efficiency, if that's a, it doesn't quite sound like the right word, but you're questioning the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse the sins of the whole world. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just yours and mine, but the power of that dead death, the power of his blood, is sufficient to wipe the sins clean from the whole of the world. But sadly, only those who put their trust in that blood. <clears throat> then looking at verse 8. That same night they are to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. They are to roast it. All The whole animal is to be roasted. Now if we roast an animal, I guess we'd take out the insides and take, cut off the head and the feet. And, and, and other bits maybe, and, but this is to be the whole thing. And that speaks of the fact that Jesus withheld nothing when he went to the cross. He went himself and sacrificed his whole self for the sins of the world. <clears throat> he gave himself completely. In, a little, in another little place it says that they instructed that they were not to break any bones. And if you remember, Jesus on the cross, when they came to him, they normally broke the bones of the crucified people in order to hasten the death. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead because he laid down his life. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. And so there was no need to break the bones. But it's a lovely picture here. They weren't to break any of the bones of the sacrifice, just as they didn't break any bones of Jesus when he was on the cross. Have you got peace today? Can I question you that? Have you got peace today? Peace with God. Peace in the knowledge that your sins are forgiven. Whatever your past, as Rick brought that word today, it sort of matched him with what I wanted to say. Whatever your past, the shame, the guilt, whatever has gone before, you can know forgiveness, a freedom from guilt and shame. Otherwise, Jesus' death is not sufficient. But his death is sufficient to remove my sin, my guilt, my shame, and everything, and make me whole and clean. God is not in the business of doing a half job. The death of Jesus is sufficient to do the whole thing and set me free and make me clean. You can know it. You can know it today. Horatius Bonar, an old hymn writer, in the mid-1800s, he wrote these words, I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. I love that word, the mighty sacrifice, because the sacrifice of Jesus was such a huge sacrifice. 
You know, God himself coming in human flesh and then being crucified by his own people who he'd created. It was a huge sacrifice. I see, I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace with God. We can all have peace with God today. Going back to verse 8, bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. They had to eat this roasted lamb with bitter herbs. It would remind them of the bitterness of, of their bondage and their uh, awful life that they had in, in Egypt. And the, and the bread without yeast. Yeast always speaks of sin. It's, I, I'm not a baker, but you know it sort of gets through and makes everything puffed up, doesn't it? And makes a whole loaf. Well, it's a picture of sin. It always has been in Scripture, a picture of sin. And they were to purge the sin. They were to purge the yeast from all their households and purge the sin from their lives because of what was coming. See, their salvation depended upon their obedience, didn't it? You know, if they'd said, well, we can, we can mess around outside. No, anybody outside that house, anybody outside that doorway would come under the judgment of God. There was only one way to be saved. It was through the door under the covering of that blood on the doorposts. It, it required their obedience. Even if they ate bread without, with, made with yeast, the, the God said that they were to be cut off from Israel. That's because the, this picture of yeast being sin. God is so holy, we need to be so serious about purging sin from our lives and living lives of obedience to him. It was a picture of purging the sin, the evils of Egypt, the false gods, the idolatry, the evil practices all had to go. We need to treat sin and disobedience very seriously today too. See, God hasn't changed because he's unchanging in his nature. He's unchanging in his holiness. It costs the death of Jesus to enable him to forgive our sins. John writes in his first letter, I write to, you, to this, you, this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But later on in verse three, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's quite solemn, isn't it? And he's not speaking about our day-to-day -day sins that we're hardly aware of because we fought, uh, 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 creatures of fallen nature. He's speaking about habitual sin that we know is dishonoring to God and displeasing to God. He says, if, you if you're happy to just carry on in that sinful life, he said, you don't know the Father and you've never seen him, which is a solemn and a sad thing. No one who, keeps, who lives his life in him, lives in him, keeps on sinning. He has neither seen him nor known him. Let's be a people with tender consciences when it comes to sin. Let's live in obedience to Jesus and to his word. Jesus said, didn't he? He says, go and learn. He said it to those around him. He said, go and learn what this means. I, have, I would prefer obedience rather than sacrifice. You know, we can come, can't we? And we can sacrifice, we can bring our sacrifice of praise to the Lord. But in actual fact, Jesus said, you can bring that, but what about obedience in your own life? That's what I prefer. 
I, I, I'm, I'm, con I, I'm done with false sacrifices, but I want people who walk in obedience to my words. When Pharaoh eventually let the people go, God led them and protected them with the miracle after miracle, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. You can read it in the scriptures. Pharaoh changed his mind and wanted them back, but God closed that chapter of their, of their history in Egypt with all its evil practices, its idolatry, its foreign gods, etc., forever when he parted the Red Sea. A picture, I understand, throughout his church history, it's always been a picture of baptism, the, the going through the Red Sea. It's a picture of the, the water being a picture of death, and they came through to, to, to the, the other side and the Promised Land, but behind them, and what was closed over the Egyptian army, has cut them off from everything of Egypt, and it's idolatry and its evil practices and its godlessness. It's a picture of that. <clears throat> God's desire is that we be separated from the world from which Egypt is a picture with its godless idolatry and antichrist ideology. <clears throat> we have to live in the world, don't we? But Jesus says, don't be part of the world. Don't be part of all those things. And so... I need to hurry on to get this, and I've, ne I've nearly finished. I just finished with this verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his wonder, marvelous light. That's the, people, that's the people that God is looking for, a people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If we're believers today, we belong to God. We belong to the, the God who is holy, who is righteous, he's just, he's incredibly loving. But he wants people who are obedient to him and walk with him and love him. And that's it, really. It's a wonderful message, isn't it, the gospel? There's nothing compares to the gospel. And the more I, the years go by, the more precious and wonderful the gospel becomes. God's love and grace reaching out to poor, wretched, often horrible sinners who are, whose lives could be transformed and will to those who walk with God and know his love and grace. Amen. If you want to, uh, if anything that I've said, you want to speak about it further or you want to know more about the salvation that is in Jesus, please come and speak to me or Daryl or others up here and we'd be very glad to, to uh, speak to you and lead you into that.